you only have this tissue once. But once you have the data, you hopefully we can use it many, many times over. So you have this one shot like, to get good data. Mm -hmm. So I did not want to compromise on the quality, especially because I knew I was only going to do one sample. everyone. Welcome to today's episode of The Medical Matrix. I'm your host, Rosie Sender, and on my right is McKenna Rice, who is my co-host today. McKenna is a medical student at UC Davis, and today's guest is Anno Faber. Anno is a tech entrepreneur. He's originally from the Netherlands and currently residing in the Bay Area. So Anno has an extensive experience in the tech space. He was a co-founder and CEO of Tapstack and of Hopake. Currently, he's the founder and chairman of RDMD, and this is a tech company helping patients with rare diseases. So would you like to add anything to that, Anno? Yeah, I, I don't think I will ever stop creating yeah. okay. <laughs> companies yes. and pro projects and this solutions. We're just on the tip of the iceberg here. Yeah, okay. yeah. Got already it. started another thing. Oh, you meantime. have already? Yeah. Okay. Wow. Uh, are you going to let us know today? <laughs> yeah, I can let you know. An exclusive today? <laughs> uh, it is exclusive. Yeah. Okay. So why don't we start by you giving us your backstory and what led you to form RDMD? Yeah, you know, as you said, I've been an entrepreneur my entire life. I started my first company in high school, and this was in internet and technology and software. So I always enjoyed working on problems that I identified, and software turned out to be a great way to solve some of these problems. So I got really into software because of that reason. And recently, as you said, like TapStack, formerly TapTalk, was a company that I founded in Europe. And when we moved it to the United States, I moved as well. And during that time, I started having hearing loss on the, my left side. And in the beginning, doctors didn't really know what it was and they diagnosed me with different things until one of them said, like, let's do an MRI, make sure there is no tumor. And it turned out there was a tumor. That was a bummer and a bit of a shock because, you know, you're 33, you don't expect a brain tumor. So you got the diagnosis and here you are, you're, you know, new to the country, building company. Mm -hmm. Like, what was going through your mind when you got that diagnosis? It was a really crazy time. On one hand, I was super excited to be here and to move here. And we were raising new funding for the company, right. which was, you know, trying to solve the problem of disconnection. It was in mobile communication, so not in medical. <laughs> but I was extremely excited about it. And I met an enormous group of people here that I was really inspired by and that wanted to help in some way and be creative and think big. Which I really love. And when my medical journey started in parallel to that, so it was really <laughs> my life at the two extreme sides. And also the first tumor, that was a, a bummer. But half a year after that, in a follow-up scan, they found a second tumor and a tumor in the spine. Mm -hmm. So then I finally got my diagnosis about a year after the first symptom which is NF2. And NF2 is a genetic disease, a rare genetic disease. About one in 40,000 people have it, an estimated one in 40,000. And people develop 
benign tumors. Benign is a bit of a misleading word. I can explain that, but <laughs> tumors in the central nervous system, right. uh, most typically on the balanced nerve and compromising people's hearing. So most people go deaf, but the tumors can also be on the optic nerves, cause facial paralysis, blindness, and in the spinal cord cause also mobility issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and some people that are, are very unlucky, they have tumors that are really hard to operate. So it can also reduce your life expectancy. So that was my diagnosis and that turned my life around and created a, a deep interest in the medical space. I just thought I would elaborate a little bit more on NF2 just for the listeners as well. So as Anu mentioned, it is tumors that develop on particular, has a predisposition to particular nerves like the auditory nerve, which is our eighth cranial nerve. But essentially it's non-cancerous tumors that affect primarily the nervous system. And so the most common tumors are the vestibular schwannomas, or we call them acoustic neuromas, and those are the ones that develop on the auditory nerve. So this is what can lead to hearing loss, to tinnitus, which is a ringing in the ears, and also balance problems because this nerve also is responsible for that as well. As uh, Anu mentioned, they can affect the optic nerve, so patients can develop issues with their sight. And primarily, I think it's cataracts that seem to develop also later on, you know, in the disease process. For some people, they'll also have tumors that develop on elements on the nervous system. So they might have tumors in relation to their spinal cord or peripheral nerves. So spinal tumors, meningiomas, and they can develop what we call a peripheral neuropathy, so a numbness and tingling in their extremities as well as balance issues as those nerves also affect motor. Anyway, I just wanted to give a little bit of a comprehensive background on what NF2 yeah. is, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's for a, people wondering about this. That's true. Yeah, it's fairly, fairly complex. There are also multiple types <clears throat> of tumors that you yep. can develop. Yes. Um, yep. Which makes, of course, drugging them harder. Exactly. Because if you have a drug for one tumor, it might not work on the other tumors. Exactly. So that, that adds another layer of complexity. So can I ask if this was a de novo mutation or something inherited in your family? Yeah, in my case, I'm the first lucky one. <laughs> so I, I did not inherit it. So I think right now, a little more than half of the patients did not inherit it. But I can, of course, pass it on from now on. So technology right now is exponentially growing, right? And it's allowing us to reimagine how we think of healthcare and how we administer it, how we deliver it, right? And, you know, when I read some of the articles on you, you know, you would see terms like medical disruptor. And I think getting to how we get away from our traditional form of thinking in medicine, diagnosing in medicine. And I think that's why your story is quite fascinating. So getting back to after your diagnosis, you know, you ended up doing this hackathon. I think our listeners would find this very fascinating because I mm -hmm. thought this is such an innovative way of thinking, how can I help solve this problem? I think the labels are <laughs> applied by other people, right? <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> but, of course. Uh, but... For me, I'm, I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to see what I can do. And I think Pretty early on, I had a big desire to learn more about the problem. Mm -hmm. And I was just very curious. And that's what, what drives me still to do what I do today. Yeah. So I'm always trying to think, like, understand the problem really well. And then from there, see how can we change this in order to make the system more efficient or increase the chances that we have proper therapy down the line. 
I started with a brain surgery. <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> we can, we can, yeah, we can go back to that first, right? That's true. Okay. Um, well, yeah. So my tumor on the left side was growing and I was already deaf on the left side at some point. And, you know, in order to prevent further issues with the tumor, we decided to remove it. So I had a brain surgery to remove the tumor, mm-hmm. which is quite an experience in itself. And yeah. I also should say that I'm on the lucky end of the spectrum. I only had a few tumors and I've only had one surgery so far. And they're like much younger patients that have like hundreds of tumors and had dozens of surgeries. So those cases also exist. I can't imagine like going through that. It's insane. That being said, the tumor tissue was out of my head. So what do you do with that? Yeah, yeah. So, so instead of it being disposed, you're like, can I take that home with me? Exactly. <laughs> I've got some plans for this right Excuse now. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> this might be a strange request, but... Yeah, so, you know, yeah, the idea came up with a friend of mine who works in genomics and computational genomics. We thought it'd be great to have sequencing data and mm-hmm. look at the data and try to see if we could find a potential off-label therapy based on that data. And I really liked the idea, and I started learning more about what it takes to sequence uh, tissue, human tissue, and what it means, and how to read the genetic code from that tissue, and how to find problems uh, or, you know, indications of of what drugs might work. So, yeah, we did that, and, uh, you know, a drug came out that we thought would work. And, yeah, at some point started taking that, a clinic that believed in it, and it worked in the beginning. Yeah. But, it, you know, as you'd say, that it, it recently stopped working. Okay. So it's become, uh, it's resistant to it's it It's resistant, okay. yeah, yeah. But it gave me it gave me a little bit of time. And of course, it, I also saw it as a contribution to science, yeah. <laughs> in yeah. a way, like being the subject. But after doing that and looking at the data, also the idea emerged to open up the data and to other people that might no other ways on how to how to look at this stuff and the data was really good mm-hmm. like where there was only one sample right which right, was me yeah we have but, our n of one but a very good <laughs> n of one but okay. let's say like a very high resolution type of of sequencing you know if you compare it to a picture like if you take a picture with a 20 year old digital camera you won't see much it's just a few pixels and the modern cameras are much better so like you can compare that to in a similar way with, with sequencing so we had really good data and decided to put uh, together this hackathon there was another group here in the bay area researchers and scientists and okay. uh, people in ai okay. and we partnered up and and put a hackathon together. So when you sequenced the tissue initially, did you do it in your friend's lab or was this part of an academic exercise? Or And who were the people that you were bringing in to partner with you? No, we didn't do it. You know, he actually, like, ironically, he has a, a sequencer in, in his living room. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> but... <laughs> You know, I, I keep a few other things in my living room. But hey, yeah, you know, exactly. teach their own, right? How many people do you know that have that? <laughs> that's pretty so, cool, though. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, but we didn't use that one. Okay. No, we okay. used <laughs> okay. we use proper facilities for okay. it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it, it's it's important. Like you only have this tissue once, but once you have the data, you hopefully we can use it many, many times over. So you have this one shot. Like to get good data. Mm-hmm. So I did not want to compromise on the quality, especially because I knew I was only going to do one sample. 
Yeah, so <laughs> it turns out the data has been used a lot more because there were 300 people at the hackathon that came. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> All downloaded it. Yeah. It was a super inspiring event. And I think for, for us, the goal was really to create a culture of focusing on the problem and, and the people that, that have the problem. It's often you forget it, like especially if you're in science working on data. Right. You know, you're just, it's pretty abstract. It's just data. <laughs> you don't see the people that are behind it, right? And so they have you. You're organizing this. This is my data. I'm a real person. Yep. And I was representing you know? really the, the, the entire community for NF2, but right. also in a broader sense, the rare disease community. Right. So, yeah, and, and it's really important to be there with the right type of mindset. I think you know, I had a really exploratory mindset. I wasn't expecting people to come up with my cure or right. anything like that. <laughs> yes, yes. So it was pretty, you know, I think there was a really good balance in, in terms of people being serious with it and, and really, yeah, and not, not making jokes. But, yeah. but at the same time, people having a lot of fun there as well and discovering and exploring. There was a really good energy, which was, was pretty amazing to see. And I remember this moment where, a friend of mine was there too, and we looked at each other like, oh my God, what, what is going on here? Like, right. this is crazy. You have all these inquisitive minds, all with the same goal. And it sounds like they were very invested in it too. Totally. And just excited about trying to find something from this, trying to figure out how can we use this data and help him, right? right. Well, and, yeah. and not only me, I, I don't think... I don't think it, yeah, it, it was actually interesting. It, it wasn't necessarily about me. Yeah. No, I understand you saying <laughs> yeah. that. Like, that, that makes sense that you would say that. But in a way, and, and I'm sure they, of course, they're thinking in the broader context of everything. So they have a project, but they have a real person standing in front of them. Mm -hmm. So the, the, yeah. you get a different emotional impact of that project on you because you're actually talking to seeing that person right so you are even you're representing a lot of people but there's a different emotional impact than say you're you know in a lab working with a bunch of other people on another disease pattern you're still excited about it you're still invested in it but i don't know if it would have the same emotional impact mm -hmm. as yeah. having your human subject right in front of you yeah no, absolutely. And I've yeah. been at this point, I've been on the other side as well. I've mm -hmm. been participating in a lot of hackathons and hacking <laughs> and, you know, seeing people that have a problem. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it is indeed pretty emotional and it's good. It, we should really do that. And I think it, it's something I think in, in general, in, in the whole medical industry, like the clinicians, of course, see patients every day. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people, I think, in that space maybe don't. And you tend, to, I think, to make decisions differently if mm -hmm. you have a case in your family or you have experienced something yourself. Or if you, like, directly see people that have it. Yeah, we are, we are human. You know? We are emotional beings. Exactly. <laughs> and we're connected, right? And, I, and we like that connection. And I think you're right. It's our experiences and our perspectives will drive us in our actions. For us in the medical field, you know, you have a relationship with your patients, right? When you're actually talking to that person and you're examining that person, they're, you know, you're part of their life in a way. There's a certain emotional 
impact that has on you, whether you're conscious of it or not, right? And and that you bring that into everything you do in your everyday treating of patients. So I think in a way, it's not to say that when you're in the research division and not in front of patients that you're not having that same emotional impact, but it's going to be different. It's going to be different, right? When you're relating to people one-on-one every day. It's more real. It's more tangible. You get a little bit more emotionally invested in it, I think. Yeah. So who are the people that showed up to this hackathon? It was actually a good mix. Like the, the hackathon we did for me, it probably was like half-half engineers, software engineers or bioinformatics people mm-hmm. and the other half scientists. And this is actually what I think was really one of the most exciting parts about this because those people might not on a day-to-day basis have the chance to sit together and spend so much time being creative about something. And there is, of course, there's a lot of low-hanging fruits if you apply what software engineers, people from AI, what they know and what they use every day to whatever, figure out if the photo is a cat or a dog. <laughs> and the scientists that are trying to like solve a, a disease. And these two groups, they they might not, there are more different groups, but let's, for the sake of argument, say that there are these two. They might not even know of what, each other's group is, is is like working on or capable of or struggling with. Each of our fields has a particular type of culture too, right? So, mm-hmm. and allowing these different groups to interact, I think there's so much more creativity that you can tap into and a different way that everybody's going to come at in terms of trying to solve this problem. So I think that's such an amazing thing to bring people together so that we relate to one another, talk to one another, teach each other our languages. Because yep. we all speak a different language. And, you know, we may have the same objectives and agendas and everything, especially if we're looking at a particular problem. But we have different ways of understanding it. We have different ways of trying to achieve that goal in a different language that we bring into it. And sometimes there's a disconnect because we're not working together and talking to one another. So I think this is such an amazing idea to bring these groups of people because that software engineer is going to teach the scientist something and the scientist is going to teach the software engineer. And then who knows what both of them together are going to come up with, right? Completely uncharted territory. Yeah. Yeah, like it reminds me of a project I did at the end of my graduation. I studied architecture. Architecture didn't, didn't mention that before, but oh, oh. building stuff. <laughs> oh, just another one. <laughs> uh, um, and at that point, I was doing a master's track. They organized the study into very specific tracks. Like one is called like architectural design. And it was like not supposed to be very technical, just more about like what, what the shape of things are going to be. Then there was a technical track. Those are the people that try to make it work and make sure that the building doesn't collapse or that the climate, inner climate is good. There was a management track, building management. There was an urbanism track, which looks more at the high level city planning things. And I never liked it and I never understood that type of organization. But for me, the gray areas between all these tracks, that's where all the stuff was happening. And yeah, I ended up like out of that frustration, starting a new graduation lab where people could pick any kind of gray area they wanted and be in the same room all with their own gray area. So even stimulating each other there. Yeah, it's called Explore Lab and uh, still exists today. So there was a real need for it too. But yeah, we tend to, when we organize things too much in these verticals, (laughs) you miss out on like the vast majority of, of 
gray area in between all those things. And mm -hmm. I think it's probably the same in science and in medicine, where you know you might be a clinician, but I just in so some people are scientists, but you see that in rare disease a little bit more, where there are these multidisciplinary clinics. Because that's the only way you can really do research. You have to see patients, learn from them. The clinical trials are also run from the clinic and the lab is also connected. So there is in rare disease, like a bit more natural reason for these things to be super multidisciplinary. But it can be much multidisciplinary from here because the average uh, software engineer will never know about problems like these they just don't even know where it's to not start. Even, yeah. And these hackathons provide a way for them to get acquainted to these types of problems and get interested in the space. And there's a lot to do. Yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a big need, right? So if we can get people interested in this arena, then hopefully there's going to be just a lot more stimulus and a lot more just genuine interest in trying to help us solve some of the big areas in healthcare and more knowledge about, you know, rare diseases or even some of the diseases that we have that, quote unquote, are common, right? Mm -hmm. There's still a lot to learn in each segment, right? And if we start bringing in different ways of thinking, perhaps we're going to learn more and more, say, even about heart disease. We have so much information on it, but there's a lot more we can still learn, right? So I think that is going to be one of the challenges, I think, also for us in medicine. And maybe it's just to look in on our, because our medicine has kind of been the same for generations, generations, generations. So it's also up to us to sort of open up our way of thinking and, you know, in the research division, but even in practical applications of daily medicine of like, how else can we look at this problem, right? So here, for example, with your hackathon, you have these engineers coming together with the scientists and are helping us think about this in a different fashion and maybe learning something that, you know, oh, we didn't think about that or didn't think of it this way. So, yeah, so I think that if we do more of this in each of our disciplines, who knows what we're going to learn? We're for sure going yeah. to learn more, you know, collecting all this data, you know, so, yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, one more note on hackathons. I think they're great ways to create that culture mm -hmm. and for people to have an opportunity to be creative and hang out for a whole weekend, 48 hours in the room where there's nothing else to do but be creative. And <laughs> Sounds to, like the Google complex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think that's like, I think it can have a big cultural impact in that way. I don't think they're necessarily a great way to fix our diseases, right? Like it's a weekend is not enough. Oh, to, to find like a solution. So I want to make a note because some people have that idea like, oh, in a weekend, we're going to, you know, find it might happen. Maybe someone comes up with a brilliant thing, you know, that can later lead to other science. But that's not going to happen every single time. Yeah. And for yeah. me, it's really important that people that come to the event have take that experience with them and use that experience on a day to day basis. Like that's where the real impact can be from events like this. So did you learn anything new specifically from this particular hackathon? I think there was one group that came up with the same theory okay. about the drug. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, so they, so they were able to see uh, yeah, they also, similarities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And But the, the project itself, it was also about how do we look at this data set of, of one person? And unfortunately, I wanted to have much more data, by the way. 
not only mine, but it, it was impossible to get. And we can get into that too. But yeah, I think the projects are more about like, how do we look into a single data set? So some people did, for example, clustering and they found other data from other types of tumors. And then they try to create clusters based on the genetics. So to see where if my tumor would fit into any other tumors cluster, and then you could look at what are the drugs that these tumors are treated with. And maybe one of these drugs will work for mine. It turns out my tumor was an outlier, so oh, <laughs> but, okay, okay. but that's fine. Yeah. Like that's fine. The project is online, it's open source. You know, everybody can continue that type of work. It's just um, you know, finding new ways to look at this data. I had one question about the drug that you used, particularly based on what you found with your friend the first time. So, from my understanding, it it wasn't a drug that you would even typically think of in terms of for using uh, in NF tube. Am I correct in that? Um, I think it was a one that was typically used for breast cancer. Yeah, no, yeah, not necessarily though. Like, I think all the drugs that are being tried and used for, for NF2 come from the oncology yeah. space. So it's not a super big surprise. There was one of the reasons I, I really started taking it was that there was already some science that uh, the pathway that we found, you know, had something to do with the NF2, with the tumor manifestation in NF2. So there was a good basis for me to try it. It wasn't sort of a out of the blue, <laughs> completely out of the blue thing. Yeah, but if, I mean, for me, that was really, that marked a starting point for my journey and into everything else I'm, I'm doing now. So after this hackathon, how long did it take you to form your company? Sort of like who's part of it and how did you guys come together? Yeah, the, initially I was a bit frustrated. I couldn't get more data for the hackathon, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I also realized, well, because I had my data uh, on a hard drive, I I was in charge of it. I can choose to share it with whomever I want. Mm -hmm. So if someone, if there is a scientist that, want, that works on NF2 and wants my data, they just email me and like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Like, here it is. And it was incredibly empowering feeling. So that's where the idea for RDMD came up. Give patients access to their data and then create pools of that data in each rare disease that can be used for research and, and drug development. So, yeah, it takes time to <laughs> start a new company and figure out what it is. You know, I met my co-founder along the way and we decided to work on medical data instead of genetic data because medical data, that seemed to be an even bigger problem in the space. So, for example, if you develop a drug for, let's say, NF2 in this case, you want to know what the general course of the disease is if you don't use any drugs. And the reason people want to know that, because you might use it as a comparator arm for how a group responds to a drug. So if you know generally the tumors grow by a certain rate, X percent per, per six months, for example, and you see that the group that you drug have stable tumors, then you can say like, oh, we think this, this does something, this works, right? So in rare diseases, it can be really hard to get a placebo group going, like a group of patients that are not on any drugs and just getting like a, I don't know, a placebo and comparing them because there are not a lot of patients in each of these rare disease groups. So it can be incredibly valuable to have a good natural history study, what is the general course of the disease and sometimes it's even used in, in FDA approvals. So yeah, there, there was an incredible uh, value from this medical data and I saw 
also how technology could significantly improve that process, <laughs> which is my background. That's your back, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, so I decided to, to start a new company and a company that's accountable to the patient community. So that was another motivation for me because the patients are the owners of their data. So our company is accountable to the patients, which brings in their voice. And normally this data is also collected, but not with patient involvement. So I also saw it as a, as a chance to indirectly give patients a voice because they are the owners of it. So what does this look like for the patients? Do they have to go and track down all of their medical records and upload them? Or how does, yeah, how does that work? Because that seems like quite a daunting task. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That, that's a really good question because in the beginning, that was the case. <laughs> I remember the first product people had to build, construct their own clinical timeline. And I mm-hmm. thought that was really wow. cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> if you could do that. And a lot I of was, people don't remember. You don't yeah. remember. No. <laughs> so yeah. it was incredibly difficult to do. And then, of course, realized that we can do it for them. It, once they put their medical records in the vault, let's call it like a digital vault. But right now, like even, you know, having your medical record complete, you know, at home is a very difficult task. And when I realized I didn't even have it, (laughs) uh, you know, that prompted us to say, no, we need to do everything. The process for patients is like 10 minutes. They sign up 10 minutes and then the rest all happens. The the company takes care of the rest. Yeah. So does that mean you help the patients collect the data? They give you some pertinent information and then... No, the only thing they do is give us permission to uh-huh. collect the data on their right. behalf. So and then we go out to the hospitals and collect the data on their behalf. On their behalf, okay. A lot of people don't remember, though, where they might have had a particular <laughs> treatment. You know, people yeah. come in to see me half the time. They're like, well, I did have surgery by somebody. I don't remember his name or her name. I think it was about five years ago. That's a very common theme, I feel, with a lot of patients. So that must be incredibly hard. So how, how do, do you get we solve that? Yeah, exactly. How do you solve that? <laughs> I, so I can tell you, like, uh, we, we ask the people to remember. <laughs> like, that's one of the few things that patients do have to do. Can you look at each of your scars? and? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes medical records reference other records yeah. from another system. And then, if, well, yeah, of course, if we see, oh, we don't have that yet, we can ask the patients to, you know, uh, to, to get that too. But yeah, that's one of the few things where we really need the patient's help. Like, yeah. okay, <laughs> they have to, they, in, in the sign up flow, they uh, basically make a little list of all the facilities they've been to. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, we cannot go to all facilities in the US to, to just try if they have been right. there. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, that, that, that wouldn't be uh, time efficient. I should also say that there is this promise that records are more electronic and data is more electronic and structured. But the reality is, especially in rare disease, all the good stuff that you need is in doctor notes, in handwritten things. You know, there are a million different audiology reporting types and you really need to get in there. There aren't great EMR systems. (laughs) You know, having worked with, I don't know, it was quite a few by now. They help a little bit to obviously uh, house data, collect data, but I'm seeing a patient, I'm, you know, scribbling down ideas, designs, and or just like, or just if I'm examining a patient, I might draw out what I'm seeing, you know, and I might not necessarily translate all of that at the medical record. Right. 
Frankly, I think it's an incentive yeah. issue. So it's, it's not like anybody's fault yeah. or people are evil. No, no, no. <laughs> it's just that they're not. They're not actually easy necessarily to use mm. for the clinicians. Yeah, they're they're not. It's not difficult, but they don't really help us significantly the way the EMR systems are currently set. Would you agree with uh, that? Absolutely. Yeah. There there was not enough collaboration going on. Not multidisciplinary. Not, a, not enough, right? Yeah. And then we don't share data amongst each other. They're not compatible. So they're not compatible. So so there's a lot of information that it would be nice if we had systems that communicated with one another so that, you know, you could have more comprehensive idea of patients' medical history and what they've had done because people don't remember. You, you know, I don't even ask patients what their medical history, like I usually ask the medical history, but I don't expect them to necessarily know it. The first thing I ask about medical history, I said, tell me what medications you're on. Mm. Because most people don't even know what their diagnoses are. Or I've had a lot of patients that would say to me, oh, I'm healthy. And then I'm like, then I take, I, this, medication, this, I take medication, this medication. medication. Yeah, exactly. And then you're like, so that doesn't mean that you're yeah. exactly healthy. You're You're stable. You're stable, mm -hmm. but these are conditions you have. So there's a lot of information that I think if there was a way we could collect the data better or people had a better idea of their medical history, you know, that they could access their medical history to some sort of system that, and we could share data better, I think we would know a lot more. Well, these are exactly the problems RDMD is trying to solve. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank but, you. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the electronic medical record systems, they are built for billing purposes and not for research, Correct. right? Which <laughs> is the fundamental problem. Correct. Yeah. And I don't have faith that that's going to change anytime soon, which is why I ended up starting that company. <laughs> because, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, if we don't have time to, to sit around for a few, de few more decades for things to change mm -hmm. for the better. There are some... Some data is really well structured, like lab data, blood tests, right? That has to be because there are like 200 values in each blood test. So if that's not a handwritten note, <laughs> that's actual structured data. So, not that your notes aren't beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure your notes are great. Oh, I don't have doctor writing at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, and then like to wait for everyone to be aligned. And, and like the, the, I did feel like, the patients have a role here because mm -hmm. they can release their records and they, if we can create a place that they can trust, we can get the important research data out of the medical records and then share it in a de-identified way with different research group. You need a centralized place. You don't want to do this over and over and over again. Oh, yeah. So much work. In rare diseases, there are absolutely no significant resources to do it. So sometimes... Even though this data is really important, sometimes therapeutic companies have to accept that it's not there, which compromises like the chances for the clinical trial to succeed. It's one of the million problems that <laughs> I encountered, but it was one I felt yeah worth solving, and that's what I started to do. So how many diseases are currently being studied at RDMD? Uh, I think about, yeah, maybe about 10. 10. A bunch on the website. Yeah, it's increasing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's growing. And how are you getting the word out? We really rely on actually patients themselves to share it amongst each other. That's one big way to do it. 
So yeah, we generally like try to find the first patients, learn from them because all these diseases are a bit different. So it's nice for us to know what the specifics are for that condition. So the first patients, they, they tell us, we have conversations and then we start from there and then, then build it up. And I would imagine that patients with rare diseases, there's probably a lot of people who are in some support groups, whether it's online or, you know, in real life. Or So that's a good way for them to probably spread the word, I would imagine, right? I think there need to be better ways. And people are organized in various different platforms. Like the foundations, uh, patient advocacy groups, of course, is a big one. Facebook groups, where like if you have a rare disease, you can probably go on Facebook and find a group, like even if there are just like 10 or 20 people in it. And those groups can be useful for all kinds of emotional support or tips from other patients. It's, it's like not everybody feels open, though, to talk in those groups because it's unfortunately a little more public than you might expect and feel. So some, some people don't feel safe talking in a Facebook group, but it is a big place for these kinds of conditions. But I still think there need to be better ways to reach these communities. So what are you working on to reach these communities? <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty early stage idea. I started a new company called Rare Matter. In, it's kind of a creative idea factory for uh, to come up with solutions in the rare disease space. And one of the projects is an, an app called Rare Pulse. And it aggregates news and information in a particular rare disease vertical. So, for example, if I have NF2, I can download the app and say, okay, I'm interested in NF2. It's also for professionals. It's for parents of patients or patients directly, people that are interested in that disease. And then they can see a news feed with updates from news from patient communities, PubMed, uh, clinical trials, Gov, or other science publications, YouTube videos about their disease. And I'm testing a few new features to get other information out like about what patients are interested in. What do they want to know from their peers, for example, and capturing that as well. And because it's a mobile app, it's, it's very friendly. So you don't have to do a lot, right? You don't have to fill in a hundred questions to be part of it. You just install the app and you join your club and then you follow the news. Which also, I think, respects people's privacy. There are no public profiles on it. It's more for you. So if you want to be private, you can still be on it. So do you have involvement with pharmaceutical companies or insurance companies? How do you work with them? Are you working with them? And what about academic institutions? The mission for RDMD is to accelerate treatments mm -hmm. in rare disease. So we do work with pharma companies because okay. <laughs> okay. they're the ones making those treatments. That's a really important piece of it, actually. We also work with academic institutes for scientific research. So we want to make sure that the community gets all kinds of value from our efforts. So we work with different in each disease with different academic groups and specialists that help, frankly, help determining how the data structure should look like, which is different for every disease. Like for NF2, you want to know about hearing. That's really important information for another disease that might be completely irrelevant. So every disease has their own structure. So are you working with institutions that are local or do you find somebody's particularly working in this particular rare disease and then reach out to them? Or how, yeah, it how doesn't are you... have to be local. Okay. No, it can yeah. be uh, because 
if the best academic center is in Boston, in yeah. New York, San Francisco, we still yeah. want to work with. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> well, that's, a, yeah, that's yeah. what I was wondering. Are you, you know, are you working with institutions across North America, in Europe or, you know, and how are yeah. you deciding that? I think and, like Europe is an interesting, I'm European, so yeah, you <laughs> of course, a, like looked at, <laughs> looked at that too. And, and, and that's still an interesting thing to work on. In Europe, it's a little harder to do something like this because there oh. are, Every country speaks another language, oh, that's <laughs> uh, for example. Okay, so yeah. the medical, you have medical records in, in Germany. They're, part of them are going to be in German. In, in France, they're going to be in French. And in Spain, they're going to be in Spanish. And in the Netherlands, some of them are going to be in Dutch. Mm -hmm. So there is a language barrier there. Of course, there are other types of regulations. There is other IRB processes. And mm -hmm. so the regulatory part is also challenging. But yeah, it's important in the end to also go there because, again, in these rare diseases, some groups are so small that we need as many people as possible wherever exactly. they're from. Some countries don't really have good medical records at all, mm -hmm. right? So for research, there is not much you can do there. There's just not useful data that you could take <laughs> yeah. away, interpret. and Even though there are... They're, the patients are everywhere in the world, mm -hmm. not only in the United States and Europe. Yeah. They're everywhere. They're everywhere, exactly. Yeah, like for research purposes, it can be difficult to to go to countries that, that have, you know, absolutely no medical record system. So, but Europe, of course, is sophisticated. Yeah. <laughs> so they have good data and good records. There are some national healthcare systems that are doing pretty, pretty important work as well. I know, at least with an orthopedics, you know, we, we did look to a lot of European data for, reg, you know, the national registries, right, mm -hmm. for joint health. And I say there tends to be a large collection of data that way. I'm not saying that, like, I know that for every particular health condition, right? But yeah, that uh, might not be so rare. Yeah, that <laughs> might, well, that's not rare. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that was just an example, yeah. right. you know, that mm -hmm. was just an example. But I'm just saying that. It seems to be tracked, so I would expect no. uh, even in the rare disease space that yeah, there is probably good, good there's probably good tracking yeah. Yeah, of data. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, there is. Yeah, sometimes even better than here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, for for rare disease, there is United States isn't a bad place because it's a pretty sophisticated country and it's mm -hmm. big. It has a federal government and. Mm -hmm. There are some federal laws as well for this, which makes it doable, I would say, to as a starting point. There are still like 400 million people here. But you want as much data as possible, wherever it comes from. If, yeah. if a place has good data, you want to include that. So in terms of support, where do you go to supporting the company and raising money for the company? And who would you go to? Yeah, this is a really good question. I would say in general, mm -hmm. to give a general answer, I think it really depends on the idea where you should try to get your funding from. Mm -hmm. Obviously, like no funding is not really good. Like, you can't yeah. do anything. Of course, yeah. So you have to get it from somewhere. Sometimes you have very wealthy families right. in, in a rare disease and they're willing to invest in new ideas and, and or donate a bunch of money and get something off the ground there. So that's an avenue. There are also, uh, you know, foundations collect money. They they do um, fundraisers or like runs or marathons every like there. Yeah. And sometimes it, it's really fascinating. Sometimes these efforts are almost countrywide, and there are so many people involved, like hyper locally, and they all like collect money and 
you know, put it in one big pot and it can, it can really add up. It's quite amazing what, mm-hmm. what some groups put together. So that's really great. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there is, you know, in the startup world, you have venture funding. So sometimes that can be the right the right track. I think it's if you have a mission driven company, you have to make sure that your business model for the company is aligned with what you want it, what you want the company to do. But when it is like venture funding can be also a great way to to get started. And frankly, any every therapeutics company right now <laughs> at some point raises venture funding. Venture funding. You need investors that are accepting risk, like high risk profiles, but are willing to throw in a lot of money to get something going. And, you know, these things, they do take a lot of resources. And this is why I felt for RDMD, it was so important that it wasn't only going to be an NF2 thing. Like it has to go after the whole rare disease space. And there are 7,000 rare diseases. We didn't talk about that, but yeah. yes. 7,000 rare diseases. Yes. There are like three or 400 million people worldwide right. with a rare disease. And, Which is um, still a lot of people yeah. with a, a rare it's disease. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, rare diseases are very common. And yeah. this is a very big mis- misconception. Mm-hmm. Even I, in the beginning, I thought I felt quite isolated. Like, oh, nobody has this. and But then nobody has this specific thing. But there are so many people who have something else. <laughs> yeah. It, at some point, you know, I realized we are all going to be patients. Mm-hmm. You know, like everyone at some point is going to be a patient, mm-hmm. or you know, someone very close to you that's going to be a patient. And that's my role as an advocate for <laughs> patient advocate, like to remind everyone mm-hmm. that this is not a problem that just like reserved for people that have a medical problem now. When you have a medical problem 10 years from now, you would wish that there was a a therapy available. So, you know, it's a problem that concerns everyone. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to wait until until it hits you or someone else. You want to be involved right now. And, uh, you know, we should collectively choose for a path that makes it more likely that we will have therapies available for everyone. Absolutely agree with that. Because everybody's going to be affected at some point in some way, I think that's why there's so much interest in the healthcare space as it is, right? Whether you're coming from administering healthcare, from studying diseases or investing in it. I think everybody, again, is affected. So it's it's just a space that will continue to grow. And I think, you know, the exciting thing now is that with technology, the way it's just growing. And, you know, I I know in the medical space that we're probably not keeping up with half the things that are going on out there right now. But it's an exciting time, though, mm-hmm. for learning new things in medicine and probably delivering healthcare and reimagining how we deliver healthcare. So it's a pretty exciting time. And then, you know, people like you coming in and, hey, why don't we think <laughs> about it this way? Or why don't we try, you know? I know, but I think it's great. It's like innovative thinking. And I, that's what we need. We need to think outside the box because at least in medicine, we tend to not think outside the box enough, I think. It's like we're comfortable in the space because as clinicians anyway, our job is to make sure we take care of the patient, right? So we want to make sure we do it in a way that we know has been tested, has, has been proven to help because you know, one of the basic tenets are to do no harm, right? So that's how we go into caring for people and that's how we deliver healthcare. But that also sometimes like limits us in expanding our way of thinking how we can deliver the healthcare because there are probably a lot of better ways, right? So that's an incredibly interesting point you just made. I think like patients from a 
clinician point of view, mm-hmm. of course, you want to give someone something that's been proven and that works and that you know is work and is safe and everything. But in the rare disease space, sometimes, you know, as a patient, you have different incentives. You don't want to necessarily just go the safe route. You're willing to take some risk because there is also a risk in not doing anything. Exactly. Right? And if you have a drug that can potentially work, that's risky to take, let's say, you might just say like, okay, I really understand the risks and I'm doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, where our system sometimes says, no, <laughs> we want we want it to be 100% safe and secure. Yeah. And like we need to test it all the, all the way through. Well, as a patient, you might be like, I don't have time to wait around. Just give it to me and I'm going to try it. I understand the risks. And yeah. and I think that's an incredibly interesting thing to to think about. Well, underneath some of that, you know, obviously, like, as I said before, it comes down to uh, we want to do what's best for the patient, what's proven. But there are underneath it all, there's liability issues, yeah, too, right? Exactly. And so that so that. Yep. plays a part in it, whether you want to admit it or not, mm-hmm. sometimes, right? Absolutely. Yeah. This is, the, I think, that the hard thing about this space is mm-hmm. you can't solve these things from your individual position. Right? It requires huge amounts of collaboration and it requires a holistic view. This is the one field where I think we really have to all together say, like, oh, we, we need to we need to change this. We need to do something and work together and, and not play a single hero. I wanted to ask you if you had a message that you wanted to impart to patients with rare conditions, but also do you have a message to clinicians that you want to impart as well? Maybe to both groups, you know, if you're not doing it already, be curious and get involved in each other's way of thinking and each other's life. I think to me, if we are going to solve problems, we need a deeper understanding of those problems. So if you're curious, just don't be shy to ask your clinician or to ask your clinician about something or to even propose ideas that may be completely stupid, but maybe also not. (laughs) And uh, from a clinician point of view, yeah, same thing. Just like, you know, I've seen it. It's a a very difficult job. You're seeing so many people, you don't have time. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really hard. There is a a world, of course, of patients. And I, I think... As clinicians, you know, maybe get involved into research as well. And, and I don't know, we all need to spread our wings a bit and, and become a bit multidisciplinary. A more holistic view. Well, thank you again, Anno, for coming in and sharing your story. You're welcome. We really appreciate it. And for those of you listening to this podcast, if you enjoyed the talk, please subscribe to the Medical Matrix podcast, wherever podcasts are found, and also our YouTube channel. Thank you. This show is being produced by StudioPod. And for more information, go to studiopodsf.com.